Good morning. It's great to be together with you in person, and thank you for those of you who are joining us online. And just, I want to thank the worship team for leading us in worship and Mindy in prayer. It has already been a rich morning together. Uh, as Mindy said, I'm Pastor Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I was a child of the 80s, so I grew up listening to the soundtrack from the film The Chariots of Fire. You guys remember that one? Yeah. Some of you? I asked Reese today. He's like, oh. he's like, I don't know idea what that's about. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Does it get you excited, right? Like, oh, man. But that movie, it tells the story of these two British athletes who competed in the 1924 Olympics. One was Scotsman Eric Liddell. And he was famous for having withdrawn from the 100-meter race because the qualifying heats for it fell on Sundays. And at that time, as a Christian, he believed that on the Lord's Day, we should rest and we shouldn't work. And he was devoted to following Christ in that. Uh, he would later on end up switching to run the 400-meter race in those very Olympics. And even though he was an underdog, he went on to win the gold medal. However, a year before those Olympics, he ran in another race, a 440-yard race, uh, that wasn't nearly as, uh, had as much fanfare as those Olympics. And it was a meet between Scotland, England, and Ireland. And at the very beginning of that race, he got knocked down and off the track only a few yards from the, from the beginning. But despite being sidelined, and more than 20 yards behind the rest of the competition, Eric Liddell got up, he chased down his opponents, and he overtook the leaders right at the finish line. That's incredible, isn't it? Like, I don't think that's something that we would necessarily expect to see in sports today. I think often if somebody was knocked down at the very beginning of the race, we would understand that they would be sitting on the sidelines, you know, head in their hands, you know, just crying that their, their opportunity that they've been working so hard for was now gone. Or perhaps we wouldn't be shocked to hear that they or their federation lodged an official complaint, you know, urging the race to be run again, right? But Liddell didn't do either of these things. He didn't even stop to consider another alternative other than crossing that finish line. He was so completely focused on this objective that he immediately put his stumble behind him and he chased after his goal. And this is the same thing that we see the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church and us to do in Philippians 3, 12 to 21, that we're looking at this morning. He compares following Jesus to running a, a race, and like Eric Liddell, followers aren't to consider any other alternative other than chasing after that goal and crossing the finish line. In this morning's passage, we are called to keep pursuing Christ's kingdom. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians 3, verses 12 to 21. Paul writes, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, 
I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of, of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, if you are just joining us in this series, then you need to know that we are in a little over halfway in this letter that was written to the Philippian church. The Apostle Paul was the one who wrote it, and he established this church on a previous visit to Philippi, but now he writes it from a prison cell, most likely in Rome, because of his devotion to Jesus. The Philippian believers who received this letter, they faced many challenges to their faith, and some of those challenges were from within. They were quarrels and struggles and disagreements that just like every church today has, but some of the pressures they faced were from outside the church. The city of Philippi was established as a Roman colony by Caesar Augustus, who bestowed Roman citizenship on its people, which was a huge and unique honor to any city outside of Italy. He also populated this town and the surrounding area with discharged veterans from the war, assuring loyalty to himself and the empire and expanding the Roman way of life. And as citizens, these Philippians were expected to give their allegiance to Caesar in exchange for the rights and privileges that Caesar gave to them. And allegiance included recognizing the emperor by his main titles, Kyrios and Sotor, which is Lord and Savior. But as we see in this passage, despite living in Philippi, the Philippian Christians are citizens of a different kingdom. They are ruled by another king who alone is Savior and Lord. And the test of allegiance that this would have brought about would have brought difficulty and potentially persecution for them. And so Paul, along with his understudy Timothy, they write this letter to strengthen and encourage this church and to encourage them to keep pursuing Christ's kingdom. In verse 12 of our passage, it begins by saying to the Philippians, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, so what is it that Paul has not yet attained? What is the goal that he hasn't arrived at yet? So we need to go back to the last passage to figure out what he's talking about. And there, Paul tells the Philippians that knowing Jesus is his ultimate goal. And in fact, it is such a great prize that we talked about last week, how knowing Christ, it's worth losing everything. But Paul ends the passage by saying in verse 10 and 11, I want to know Christ. Yet to know, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. 
So for Christ, or sorry, so for Paul, the goal is, is knowing Christ. We talked last week for Paul how knowing Christ, it's, it's more than just being familiar or un, having an understanding of who Jesus is, but it's having a personal knowing. It's a close and intimate relationship. You see, Paul sees himself as an apprentice underneath his master, Jesus. And so Paul watches Jesus closely, and he does the things that he sees his master doing. And so that's why he says that, like Christ, Paul expects to participate in Jesus' suffering and even to become like him in his death, because that's what apprentices do. They do the things they see their master doing. But the ultimate goal, the finish line where apprentices under Christ finally graduate and become like him and know Jesus unhindered is attaining to the resurrection. It's attaining to the resurrection. I'm so glad that you picked that song that we sang, I believe in the resurrection, right? That's what we believe in. You see, for Christians, resurrection, that's our goal. It's the prize that God is calling us to. It's not just heaven. When the NIV says in verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus, it's not the best translation. Others interpret it like the English Standard Version does. It's better. It says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that upward call, N.T. Wright says, is the resurrection life itself. You see, the hope from the beginning of the Bible to the very end isn't that God would just whisk us all away from earth to heaven. Rather, it's a return to what it was at the beginning. When God made this good world and it wasn't distorted by sin, where our relationship with him, it wasn't damaged by our rebellion. You see, before the fall of humanity, we lived in harmony with all of creation. And the Bible says that God worked, walked with humans in the cool of the day. It was heaven on earth. And a return to that perfect, undamaged life before the fall, that's what the hope of Israel was. That was the hope of the prophets. That's what Jesus came and taught, and he told us to pray this. He says, pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Paul makes this clear in verses 20 and 21 of our passage this morning when he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await, from a, await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now you might be thinking, hold on a sec, Dave. If our citizenship is in heaven, doesn't that mean heaven's the goal, that that's the finish line? No, it doesn't. You see, remember that the people of Philippi, though they were Roman citizens, they didn't live there. In fact, that is the last thing that Rome wanted all of its citizens abroad to do, was to return back to Rome and live in Rome. What Caesar and Rome wanted was the exact opposite. They wanted to send their citizens all over the world to expand the kingdom, to spread Roman culture, influence, the way of life, Roman rule, all abroad. 
And if a Roman colony such as Philippi were to all of a sudden be under attack, its citizens' hope wouldn't be in escaping from Philippi and getting to safety in Rome. Rather, it would be Caesar, their savior, coming from Rome to Philippi in order to rescue them, defeat the enemy, and establish Rome's rule. And this is the picture that Paul is painting for the church in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, that the church is a heavenly colony in a foreign land. And as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we have a responsibility then to spread the kingdom's way of life, to spread heavenly culture, Christ's influence further and further abroad on this earth. Though we may often feel weak or under attack, Our hope isn't ultimately in escaping to the safety of heaven. Rather, it's the coming of King Jesus from heaven to earth in order to save us, defeat his enemies, and firmly establish his kingdom's rule. You see, this is the goal. This is the prize which Paul presses on to take hold of. He keeps pursuing Christ's kingdom. Paul says in verses 12 and 13, It's not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. I I don't consider myself to have already taken hold of it. We might assume that it's pretty obvious that, you know, Jesus hasn't returned yet, that Christians haven't been resurrected. So why does Paul then feel the necessity to say these things? It could have been for a couple of reasons. One, it could be that there were some Christians who believed that they had achieved some sort of complete experiential oneness with God. They felt like they had fully matured, that they had now become masters of the Christian life, that they, were, they no longer needed to be apprentices. On the other hand, perhaps there were some who in the face of opposition and the internal dissension that was in the church, they lost their vision for Christ and anticipating his coming again. And this is a trap that as Christians, we can often fall into one of these two things, the trap of mastery or complacency. You see, some followers, often young or new Christians, they will often have zeal, which is fantastic, but they can often lack humility, feeling as if they've arrived, that they have mastered the faith. On the other hand, there are other Christians often long-time believers, who know that they're not perfect and have fallen into this trap because of discouragement by sin or maybe a lack of progress in their Christian faith, and they have become complacent. But Paul is this great example to us of someone who knows that he hasn't arrived, even though he's this famous apostle, and he's also far from complacency, despite sitting in a prison cell. Paul has zeal, and humility. He presses on, but he's not there yet. Paul keeps pursuing Christ's kingdom. And this is how he wants the Philippians and us to live as well, knowing that we're not where we want to be yet, but full of expectation that someday we will get there. Actually, it's more likely that someday Jesus will come here and bring it all to completion. So we keep pursuing Christ's kingdom. Now, in this passage, we are given two examples, and the first is a positive one, and it's Paul himself. Not only is he humble, but he also tells us how we are to run this race. 
He says in verse 13 and 14, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win this prize. So the first thing we need to do to keep pursuing Christ's kingdom is we need to forget what's behind. This doesn't mean that we don't remember the past, but friends, it does mean we don't live in it. You see, Christians often will allow their past failures to paralyze them, stop them from following Jesus. Paul himself had a monumental uh, failure in his life. He persecuted the church. He stood by giving approval while Stephen, one of the early disciples of Christ, was being stoned to death. And even though Paul regrets this, he didn't allow this past mistake or sin to stop him from following Christ. He confessed it, he received Christ's mercy and his forgiveness, and he turned his life around and he followed Jesus. Paul didn't allow his future to be determined by his past failures. And we don't have to allow them to determine our future either. God is eager to forgive us from our sins and failures. And so we don't live in the past. We don't allow it to paralyze us. But Paul also didn't stop running the race because of his past accomplishments, right? He would not rest on his laurels. Christians are often guilty of living in the past, believing that, you know, earlier commitments made for Christ or earlier achievements in ministries have somehow cemented our place in God's kingdom. But Paul has already said to the Philippians in chapter 2 that this is not an option when he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the first thing we need to do in our pursuit of Christ's kingdom is that we need to forget what's behind. Just like Eric Liddell right? When he was knocked down. If we get knocked down or if we get off track, if we have past victories, it doesn't matter. We forget what was in the past, right? We pick ourselves up and we keep running towards that goal. So second, Paul says that we strain towards what is ahead. Paul seems to really enjoy the athletic metaphors. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race that all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So in telling the Philippians to strain or telling the Corinthians to go into strict training, Paul is saying that we need to put in the maximum effort to make sure that we run this race well. We need to put in maximum effort to make sure we run well. For Christians throughout the ages, this has meant spiritual practices or disciplines, things like Bible reading and study, Prayer, tithing, fasting, service, meeting together in fellowship for worship, and more. And none of these things are the goal themselves. They are a way that we strain towards what's ahead. It's the way that we train for this race. But that leads us to the third way that Paul tells us to pursue the kingdom. He says, pressing on towards the goal. You've got to keep your eyes on the prize. 
Now, I'm no runner, and I thank God every day for that. (laughs) But I am a cyclist. Amen. And I have participated in some some long bike races and even some ultra-distance bike rides. And though these events are physically demanding, friends, I have to say it's the mental and emotional stresses that are even more challenging to overcome. And that is the same thing when it comes to our running the faith race. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And we need to keep focused on the goal. It is essential. You see, focusing on the goal, it reminds us why we are doing this. It helps us to stay strong when we are down or tempted to give up. Focusing on the goal prevents us from looking back or to the sides and getting distracted, but we keep looking ahead. We keep looking ahead towards the prize that awaits us. It motivates us to keep going. And the great thing that Paul says here in verse 17 is not only do we have him as this example, but we join in with other brothers and sisters in pursuing Christ's kingdom. He says there, keep your eyes on those who live as we do, those who are running alongside of us. This is so helpful because it means we're not running the race alone, that we have one another to pick each other up when one of us stumbles right? That we can shout encouragement to each other when someone needs a second wind, or we can give direction if someone veers off course, right? We keep pursuing Christ's kingdom, but we pursue the kingdom together. Paul then, after these positive examples, gives us some negative ones as a warning. He says in verse 18, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind's not set on earthly things. Paul's not talking about pagans or unbelievers here. Paul is weeping because these are people who claim to be Christians, perhaps people he even knows, but they are not living faithfully in obedience to Christ. They they live or they walk as enemies of the cross. By saying that their God is their stomach, Paul is saying that rather than pursue Christ's kingdom, that they are only looking to satisfy present-day appetites or desires. They're not focused on the eternal prize, but their minds are set on earthly things. And unfortunately, I get that too well. It's hard not to focus on the earthly things. I often make choices based on what's happening around me here today rather than in light of God's kingdom that hasn't fully arrived yet. And living where we do in such a progressive city like ours, many Christians have adopted worldviews about politics or sexuality or many other things that are wildly at odds with Jesus' vision for this good life that he wants us to live. Some Christians believe that we can, you know, we can turn things around today in Canada. We can make it great. If only we would usher out a certain leader and vote in our particular political party. Or students I've worked with for decades can't see why we should limit sex to only man and woman in a marriage. It seems so irrational that God would want us to be happy and yet he would ask us to deny ourselves pleasure and romance and love. 
But yet both of these sets of assumptions about what will make for a good and happy life are not only at odds with what the Bible teaches, but they only take into account the here and the now. They are not focused on the goal that Paul had, which is the eternal kingdom of God. Friends, we are called to think about our lives differently. We're called to live them in light of Christ's future coming and not just our present moment. And it's hard. But here's the best news of all. As we keep pursuing his kingdom, as we run this race, we don't do it alone. We don't even do it in our own strength and ability, but Christ himself helps us. He carries us along the way. Back in verse 12, Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul is saying that all of his efforts to live faithfully and be obedient, they're not just a matter of his unaided attempts to do something that will please God, but rather they all take place within the context of God's grace. Theologian Lynn Kohick, she she sees this as a picture of like a toddler who is reaching out for its mother. And from the toddler's point of view, you know, it's the one who's wrapping its arms or taking hold of its mother. It's the one clinging on. But from the mother's point of view, from, from God's point of view, that toddler is already in its loving arms being carried along the way. If Jesus is your king, then he has already picked you up. You are already his child and he has grasped a hold of you. And now that all that you do is just a matter of responding to him in love. In the final verse of this passage, Paul writes, We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Living, uh, living in heaven, it isn't the goal that we're aiming at here. Rather, it's living in, in God's new world with our new bodies. See, Paul, at the end here, he refocuses us back on the goal, right? The resurrected life. But remember, the prize cannot simply be just going to heaven, right? Verse 20 and 21, it not only speaks of Jesus' coming from heaven to earth in order to transform our bodies to be like his own resurrected body, but it also hints that he will also transform this earth with new glory. Everything will be under his control. And just as we long for Jesus' return so that we can be made whole again, the Bible says that all of creation longs for his return so that it can be made whole again when we are made whole. Romans 8, 18, Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
So this then means that pursuing Christ's kingdom, it won't only have implications for us, but also it will have implications for our fellow human beings as we pursue the kingdom. And it will also impact the whole of creation as well. You see, even though God's kingdom won't be fully established on earth until Christ returns, we do believe that when Christ came into this world, that that was the beginning of God's inbreaking kingdom. When Jesus showed up on the scene and he said that the time has come, that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And so we are supposed to live now as citizens of that kingdom that has drawn near. Even though it's not fully here yet, we live, in the, we live as citizens of that kingdom, not this earthly one. This means then that our lives should not only be examples to those around us of how citizens of heaven behave, but according to Paul, pursuing Christ's kingdom should begin to liberate creation. That it is freeing creation from destruction. It is not bringing creation to further bondage and decay. Again, theologian Lynn Kohick, she writes, it's wrong to assume that this is all just about us. This transformation of the saints to conformity to Christ's glorious body is but one piece of his full victory over all the powers, putting all things in subjection to him. Christ came to save sinners. He came to give life abundantly, but he also came to right the destruction plaguing creation. It's not enough to save human souls. He must vanquish death once and for all, subjecting all of creation under his just and loving hand. He is spreading the kingdom abroad. He is spreading his rule over the entire cosmos. Now, I know that some of you, like in other Christian circles, perhaps, you know, you're getting a little uncomfortable with this. You know, when we talk about creation care, it's like you get your back up a little bit, but it's okay, you know, it's all right. We can breathe. We can take to heart what Paul says in verse 15 when he writes, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. But in the meantime, friends, in this meantime, we need to keep pursuing Christ's kingdom with all that we have. It means that we all need to be zealous and humble. It means we are avoiding attitudes of mastery or complacency. We're not living in the past, right? We're not resting on the laurels of previous victories. We're not allowing past failures to paralyze us. But by God's grace and mercy, we press on together with one another. We stay focused. We are keeping our eyes on the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, friends. We are pursuing Christ's kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen.